Welcome to this evening's Mountain Talk Monday. This week we have Letcher County native Gary Bentley, who earned his living in the Kentucky coal mines for 12 years. In January of this year, Gary began writing a new column for the Daily Yonder, which is an online publication from the Center for Rural Strategies. His column is called In the Black, and through it, Gary hopes to give a more accurate representation of coal mining and miners than we currently see in the media. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. Join us for the next hour as we go In the Black with Gary Bentley on WMMT's Mountain Talk Monday. Thanks for coming by the station, Gary, and we'll get started. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you chose mining as your career? Okay, well, of course, I grew up here in Letcher County uh, from Whitesburg, born and raised. And living in the area, I feel like there's not a lot, or well, at least not at that time, there's not a lot of options for uh, employment, you know, especially to earn a good living and you know, to support a family. But at that time, I really wanted to go to college. And my family was in that weird borderline where I couldn't get financial aid, but yet they couldn't afford to pay for me to go to college. So I ended up going into the mines in order to pay for my college education. And then over time, just kind of stuck it out and decided that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So you did in some ways enjoy it? Yeah, so I did, uh, over time, learn to enjoy working in the mines. It took a long time to become accustomed to the work and the conditions. But then you find this sense of camaraderie amongst the people working underground. And then it's a little bit of the pride of being a coal miner. You know, it's a very romanticized job, even though it's really not as special as what, you know, people like to believe it is. But yeah, over time, you, you become accustomed to the work. It becomes just a normal day. Honestly, for around here, the income was kind of hard to beat in any job. Yeah, it definitely is. Four generations now of my males in my family have been miners. So I definitely know what it means to be proud of your job, even when it's rough and it may be driving you crazy, to be really proud that that's what you're doing. And and there is that sense of, you know, I'm going every day to work and I'm earning a good living for my family, um, which is like you said, really hard to duplicate around here. And I know what other job can you come straight out of high school, get some training in a card, and start making about 60000 a year. There's nothing like that with yeah. no college debt. <laughs> yeah, and that was my issue. And then, I, you know, as I went to college, of course I went into education thinking I was going to be a teacher. And then I realized by the time I got to the point of really focusing to get that degree that I was already earning more as a minor than I would have been as a teacher. So at that point, I was like, you know, I'm just going to stick this out and then ended up changing my major to mine management and safety. So did you actually work in that field? Did you stay as a minor? Um, I worked because you have to have so many years experience to get certified to do different jobs. Mm -hmm. So of course, I worked in the beginning shoveling belt, then became an equipment operator, roof boulder, and then I got like my electrical certification, and then I got my foreman certification. I never worked anywhere beyond a mine foreman. That was about as far as I went. 
in, I think you've got four installments on the yonder now. Yes. Of In the Black. You've not gotten past the green stage yet. <laughs> no, it takes a while. <laughs> right? And I think you've not quite gotten to the stage where you're enjoying it yet either. Uh, definitely not. It, it took me a long time to find the enjoyment. Maybe not the enjoyment because I don't think I ever really enjoyed doing the work, but to get to the point to where that's what I wanted to do. Do you have any segments from what you've written that you'd like to read? Well, I have a couple on hand with me. I have some of the earlier segments that are online, Mm -hmm. and then I have some of the later ones that tell some of the stories as I was getting into mining. And I think the ones I brought are still kind of in the early stages, but they are a little more detailed and a little different situations than what are in those first four. Well, let's, since we've been talking about the first four that are already out, why don't we start with a segment from there? All right, so this story, um, I think, ended up being uh, labeled First Day Jitters because this was my first day working underground. I was 18 years old, had only been out of high school for a short, maybe a couple months. And so it was my first day at this mine, never been underground, had no clue what I was doing. And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from sort of the middle and end of the story. I walked a fast pace out to the rail car, twenty burly men lying side to side, somewhat spooning, like my girlfriend and I would do at night. I was intimidated and scared. I wasn't just scared because we were riding a rail car seven miles back into the mountain to work in a 36-inch seam of coal. I was scared because these were real men. They were fathers of the kids I went to school with, Men who had enough strength to bend a one-inch steel bar with their bare hands. I'd witnessed that. I was just a skinny teenage boy with glasses, bad skin, and not enough to pick up a loaded number four coal shovel. So I just laid down in the first opening I saw. I turned on my headlamp and closed my eyes as the wheels of the rail car barked against the rails and the diesel engine roared into my ears. Whoa, stop! His voice cut through the noise like nothing I'd ever heard. Sparks flew up past my face, and the wheels of the car screamed as the operator brought us to an abrupt halt. All right now, it's Sunday night after payday. Everybody chip in so we can get this night started right. Don't anybody hold out. I know y'all got it. All these men, they were bearded, haggard, eyes sunken back into their skulls. The darkness and the glow of the headlamps made everyone look like death. They were pulling plastic bags, pill bottles, and emptied skull cans out of their pockets so they could dump their Loratab, Xanax, Valium, and whatever other prescription drugs they had onto the top of the rail car. Then the guy looked over. Hey, new kid, you got any medicine to put in? I just shook my head left to right, right to left, right to left again. And just about the time I stopped myself, I watched the men use their mining certification cards to cut lines of a multicolored rainbow assortment of powders. It disappeared as quick as we did when we entered the drift mouth, and so did the romanticism behind coal mining. Not the image that we typically get today of of miners and mining. I think it takes real bravery to come out with that scene right out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a culture shock for me. I mean, growing up here, I'd heard rumors, people talk about, and it was in the news of prescription drug abuse. I'd never seen it with my own eyes. I'd never in my life seen anybody snort a pill. I had no clue. I'd just heard people talk about it. 
So it was one thing to be scared and terrified of going into this mine and traveling under a mountain with these men. But then to see them do that right before work, just I was in complete shock and I didn't even know how to react to it. So you describe in in later segments how the miners are varied in personality and what they do with their free time. Was this common among all the miners or just a certain set? Oh, definitely not. Um, I think there were a lot of men that, you know, relied on prescription pain medicine just due to old injuries or just general aches and pains that you would get from doing that kind of work for 30, 35 years. And they they were not abusing the drugs by any means. I mean, it was their way for them to ensure they could go to work every day and do their job. But then you had the people that were abusing the prescription pain pills. And I think a lot of those people took the jobs just so they could afford their drug habit. I mean, it was kind of a running joke for a while between, like, supervisors and stuff. And we'd always say, you know, if they didn't drug test, we'd have the best workers because they'd have to be here every day. And, you know, it was it's a bad, terrible disease. But, unfortunately, there was a lot of it underground. And I'm sure it surfaced from people with injuries. And over time, just that was their only way to cope. Um, it was very unfortunate. Luckily, though... After a few years of being underground, they really started enforcing drug testing. And I remember when that first was heavily enforced, sometimes I would take three or four drug tests a month. Yeah, I've heard some of the folks that I know that are in mining and in charge of hiring saying they have a really hard time finding workers because of people's inability to pass a drug test. And they said that's that's getting more prevalent. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate, especially when you think about these men that have families, people in their life they need to take care of and provide for financially. Mm -hmm. Because if I remember correctly, unless the laws have changed, the first time you fail a drug test, you're suspended from mining. For around six months, you go before a board, you come back to work, and then either the second or third time, you lose your certification for life and you can never work underground again. Not to draw out this topic, but it's really interesting to think about when we consider addiction as being a disease and how it could have started basically from a job injury, and then it's keeping them from continuing to work, and yet there seems to be no treatment program for specifically for minors, specifically to help them stay on the job. And, you know, and I completely sympathize and understand what it's like to have to go to work and deal with pain. Uh, I separated a shoulder one time, my own fault racing motorcycles, but had to go back to work and work with a separated shoulder. And, of course, it took much longer for it to heal than if I would have taken time off, but I couldn't afford to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. I had too many financial responsibilities. And then uh, fractured five vertebrae in my back once, had to go back to work the next day. You know, I understand why they do it and completely sympathize with them and just wish there were, was a better option. Definitely. I, I hear you there. So um, your editor for The Daily Yonder, Tim Marama, quotes you in an introduction that he wrote to your series. He says that you said this. Coal does exact an environmental cost, Bentley says, but it also provided a living for people many of whom were glad to exchange labor for money and a more stable economic future. And the romantic notion of the poor but noble miner risking his life 
for little in return, ignores the fact that mining pays pretty well, or at least historically it has. We've talked a little bit about your idea of the romanticization of coal mining and such as that, but you say that you have two mining stereotypes that you'd like to shed some light on, and that is Big Evil King Coal and the Romanticism. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'll start off with, it seems to me like the majority of time when we relate and hear stories about the miners, the people working in the mine, everybody flashes back to the Depression era, black and white photos of the miners with their uh, carbide lamps sitting out in front of the company store, you know, holding picks and shovels and just living uh, very rough lives in the coal camps. And that was very accurate for that time frame. But then as, you know, time went on after union strikes, you know, wars, luckily things I didn't have to be a part of. But, you know, things got much better. Working in uh, coal mines, I had the best insurance and benefits I've ever had. Pretty much the best pay that I'd ever received. And then I think about men that didn't even have a high school education or a GED. I mean, a lot of those guys were able to make 70, 80, sometimes $100,000 a year. So I feel like, you know, portraying the true modern day miner, I guess, would be a way to say it. Because I feel like people from outside the area never see that. They always see those old black and white photos from, you know, Depression era mining. And then, of course, the old King Cole. When you talk about mining, you know, everybody wants to talk about the environmental issues or the uh, arguments between the land and the people. And don't get me wrong, all of that stuff has its place. It's just I want to shed a little more light on what it was really like and more of a down-the-middle kind of a picture and explain things from the eyes of a coal miner. Because, don't get me wrong, we had our issues with the company, and we all want clean water to drink. We want clean air. You know, we want to take care of the land and the communities. Of course, you know, the companies, it's it's not a sustainable industry, and when they leave, the money leaves. And so, yeah, I just want to give an honest portrayal and honest story from the eyes of a coal miner that was in there every day. That's one of the things that I see a lot with folks who live outside of the coal fields is that they feel like all miners are knowingly participating in environmental wreckage without any feelings about it or without any care towards it. And, you know, being a daughter of a miner and one who worked on reclamation of strip mines, that was a big deal for me to see people assume that my dad just didn't care about the way things were and the fact that he's the one that taught me to love the environment and taught me to love being out in nature and everything I know about rocks and plants and all of that he taught me people assume a lot and you know I've worked with miners who were also battling other coal companies and often the company they worked for due to issues with their land and property so you know it was a it was another job and it was a way for these people to provide for their families and often put their children through college put themselves through college it was uh, there's a lot more to it than just the two stories that we often hear. And that's another thing that a lot of assumptions can be made about 
we hear because we live in such an impoverished place that we're lazy and that we don't work. But these men are risking life and limb every day to provide a good living for their family. I don't think they're acknowledged for that as much as they should be. And, you know, you bring that up, and there's a story that will be coming out later. And there was a woman I worked with underground, completely changed my entire view on not just working in the mines, but life in general. Her husband was an underground miner who was completely disabled. And in order to provide for the family, she started working underground after he had already essentially had a crippling, you know, injury through work. And talking to her about that and how you deal with it just completely changed my whole idea around mining. We talked a little bit about how it has changed. We've got that American Experience show that just was released, Mine Wars. Yeah, it was amazing, by the way. It's a really great show, and they talk about a lot of that history where we essentially were like indentured servants to big industry. Talking about script where we didn't even receive real money, you know, for our work. But like you said, those men fought for people like you (laughs) to be able to make a career out of it and to be as safe as possible underground. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing is, that's the reason I say all these stories play their role and have a part in the history, and I feel like coal mining is, because it is on a decline, and I don't see it coming back, but I feel like coal is part of our history and our heritage just as much as old-time music and many of the other different parts that play roles in our lives, and I feel like 50 years from now, people need to hear not just the stories from the union wars and the strikes, but also from the more modern day because, you know, there's not as much of the the labor conflicts as there were then. And so you really don't hear about anything on media. I mean, of course, if there's a fatality, you're going to hear about that. If a company shuts down, you're going to hear about that. But you never really hear the stories of the people that are currently working underground. And it's almost as if they're still fighting the good fight in a way just to be able to make a living because, like you've said several times, there's not a lot of other choices if you want to stay in the mountains. Yeah, for me, when I lost my job, my options were to go to New Mexico, to go to Alabama, or go to Western Kentucky. I was fortunate enough to find employment in Western Kentucky, and it allowed me to be with my daughter at least every other weekend. And so I think about a lot of the people that, you know, have been here for, or at least as adults been living for 35 years, their homes are probably paid for, you know, they're settled, they've got children and grandchildren. They don't want to move, and I don't blame them. At the time, I was kind of skeptical about moving, but I didn't have a choice. That's another big issue I have with everything that's going on right now. I feel like our government has failed us, at least in the state, because 50 years too late now, there is no employment. And, you know, coal miners, even though a lot of the guys themselves wouldn't admit to it, they have a skilled trade. I mean, they're electricians, they're welders, metal workers. I mean, these guys could do a multitude of jobs and be employed. However, there's not any opportunities in the area right now. Do you ever see Eastern Kentucky as being capable of building back in a different way or through another? Oh, yeah. I think if we can get the support from the state 
federal go. I mean, it's going to take a lot of pull power to make it happen, but we have the workforce here. I mean, it's finding a sustainable industry. You know, I really don't think manufacturing or because as soon as they find a cheaper workforce or something more opportune for them, they'll be gone just as the coal companies have. But I think if we can find a sustainable industry, it would be no problem. We have skilled workforce here. So it's just getting those uh, new jobs into the area. And so someone like yourself who has made a career and gotten a degree in mining health and safety, do you feel like you have a future with that degree or do you feel like you're going to have to start all over? Well, I don't necessarily think my degree has helped me at all, but I feel like my experience as a miner has because when I decided to leave the coal mines, I went to work for an aluminum manufacturing facility in Indiana. My experience as a coal miner with the maintenance side of things and then also being a supervisor is what got me the job. They were blunt, came out and told me, this is why we're hiring you. And I asked them at the time of the interview, I said, I know nothing about aluminum. I have no clue what you do at this facility, but I no longer want to work in the underground coal mines. And they said, with your experience and skills, we can teach you the rest. And so that helped me get into a totally different career. And now I feel comfortable that I'm not going to have to worry about having a job tomorrow. Do you ever see yourself coming back to Eastern Kentucky to live? Well, not in the current state of things. It would, it would be very hard to come back here. I, I mean, I honestly, I don't even know where I would find employment. Definitely not anytime soon. I do miss being in the mountains, and I come back quite often to participate in activities and events going on in the area. All of my family, or at least my immediate family, they still live here. I think if there were some opportunities, I would probably come back just to be closer to family. But at this point in time, I don't even see how it would be feasible for me to come back right now. Let's have you read another segment and just choose any of the ones that you have with you. Okay. This is probably from one of my earlier days. I was actually doing hard rock mining in Pike County, and that's when you are drilling the shafts and also uh, cutting the rock for the uh, portals to get to the coal seam. Some companies do that on their own, but this was an outside contractor that was hired to drill a shaft. 300 feet below the snow-covered surface, an exhaust fan is blowing 20,000 cubic feet of air. The air was screaming at us through a turbine engine. It changed the temperature from 25 degrees to 5 degrees where we would stand. It was miserable and cold. We layered our socks, gloves, and pants, packing in hand warmers anywhere possible. We were fighting giant rotating jackhammers, water pouring over our heads. The ragged and torn water lines feeding the machine spilled more water than they ever gave to the machine. We watched for any sign of danger and occasionally would catch a droplet of water freezing off the brim of our hard hats just seconds before a rock would come crashing beside of us. It was always loud, constant hammering, roaring winds, men screaming at one another. Our horns would give signal if someone was entering or exiting the shaft on the crane-hoisted platform. I was constantly nervous watching out the corner of my eye for falling rock, a piece of steel, or an angry co-worker that had finally got fed up with helping me finish the job. I'd never worked so hard and failed so miserably. 
Bentley, you gotta watch the water. Now get that steel out of the hole and finish the job. Once again, someone was fed up. I would continue doing the best I could and work as hard as possible, never saying a word. My new boss, Ron, he would scream at the top of his lungs, cuss, pull tools from my hands, and then he would stop and in great detail he would show me what I needed to do correctly, the proper way to do it. And then he would pat me on the back and in an encouraging way, much like a football coach in high school, keep it up kid, you'll figure it out. I know it's hard work, just keep at it. I would often imagine walking out, going home, giving up. However, unless I could levitate, I wasn't getting out of there. I was 300 feet down, and the boss definitely wasn't going to give the signal to give me a ride out. You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday on 88.7 WMMT, Real People Radio. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. This evening, I'm here with Gary Bentley, Letcher County native and former underground coal miner, who's been writing a column about his underground mining experience for an online publication from the Center of Rural Strategies called The Daily Yonder. Gary's column is called In the Black, and you can find it at dailyyonder.com. In 2012, staff with WMMT and Making Connections News interviewed Gary Bentley just after he had been laid off from Arch Coal and obtained a new job mining out west. To hear that interview, you can go to www.makingconnectionsnews.org and search in the search function, Gary Bentley. And now, here's a segment from that 2012 interview, Gary Bentley on the politics of coal. More of tonight's interview in just a moment. Everybody wants to blame it on a certain person or blame it on the government. And, I mean, to a certain extent, I guess I can see where they get that idea from. But I was recently at uh, some the EPA hearings in Pikeville, and I was real disappointed with our local, state, regional politicians because I felt like they all got up there and wanted to point their finger and say, it's so this person's fault, it's this person's fault. You know, they're fighting, they're trying to destroy our industry. They're destroying eastern Kentucky. But at the same time, they're in the position. Why weren't they doing more to stand up for the region? Why weren't they trying to bring in other industry in case this... Because, I mean, the layoff started over a year ago. And you can see the decline in the market. If you, I mean, anybody with any sort of intelligence that keeps up on the coal industry saw the decline coming. Nobody knew how it would hit. So I feel that uh, I feel that our you know political leaders and stuff really failed us by not having a backup plan for the area and for the people in the communities. Um, I don't really know who to blame this on. I mean, the price of natural gas is the biggest player in this. I mean, natural gas destroyed the coal industry as far as the market goes on the price. Um, I feel um, these companies, and anybody can look this up online, I mean, it's out there to see Kevin Crutchfield, CEO of Alpha Natural Resources, stated that they were moving their operations from Kentucky 
to the Illinois River Basin and to uh, around, uh, I think it's the Wyoming River Basin. They're moving out there because the coal's easier to mine and you make a larger profit. I mean, you can go to these rallies, and I've been to about three between this last layoff and when I got laid off, and all they were doing was essentially fighting for votes. Um, None of our local regional political officers really wanted to talk about the issues or talk about how they were going to make this better or talk about how they were going to correct it. It was all uh, an agenda to get more votes. And they were essentially all just um, rallying for the coal industry, which I'm grateful for because that's how I make my living. But at the same time, I want to hear what they're going to do to make things better. If all they're concerned about is the coal industry, then I want to know what they're going to do to be able to bring it back. You know, I don't want to hear, you know, they're trying they're got there's a war on coal, you know, and then everybody clapping and cheering, that doesn't change anything. I mean, I don't it doesn't matter who's at fault. It matters who's going to change it and who's going to take the steps to do something different. I mean, I just too many people look at these um these political office holders with a much higher regard than what they should. They're everyday people just like us. And to be honest with you, I'm starting to worry that they're not all that intelligent either because they don't they don't want to talk about anything. Um I'm not going to mention any names, but I go to these rallies and I want to hear answers. I want to see what they're trying to do, what they're other than saying we need to stop this war on coal. Yeah, you need to stop the war on coal, I guess, but you need to figure out how to fix it. That's We need answers. We need real answers and real solutions, not just a bunch of hot wind. a lot of mixed signals one minute you felt like you were on the verge of being whooped and (laughs) the next minute good job it was a interesting job and there's i can't remember which story that came out i think the third story but i was ended up working essentially with a lot of felons i was still at 18 at the time but I was the only employee at the time that did not have a record or a felony charge, so I was in charge of handling all of the explosives. So it was a very intimidating group of men to work with. None of them were really open to talking or explaining what was going on. It was just a lot of screaming and cursing and throwing things. For an 18-year-old kid, it was very intimidating and scary. 
So let's talk about the dynamic between minors overall. I've heard all kinds of stories from the, I can't believe that would actually happen underground and I would be trying to get out of there. (laughs) Or it's like brotherhood. And it is. It's hard to explain because, you know, there are so many different personalities. Every mine I worked at had a different atmosphere that you were in. And it was anything from really strong brotherhood. Everybody was there to help everybody and to make sure we all had a safe shift and went home the next day. Then you would get the, uh, what I would refer to as the frat boy mentality with the hazing. There was, uh, as much as I hate to say it, there was a lot of sexual violence that happened underground. And a lot of people played it off and, oh, you know, we're just joking, cutting up. And that's the reason I call it the frat boy atmosphere. But then there was a lot of just blank, no personality, they, no talking. You went in, you did your job, and you left. It was a very hard thing to become accustomed to because each crew you worked on, each mine you went to, it was always different groups of people and different personalities. So you had to kind of adjust everything you may have gotten accustomed to the previous time to this new group of people and men. At one point in time, you worked with a woman. With all of these frat boy mentalities and hazing and all of that, how does a woman fare underground? You know, it's very interesting. I've worked with multiple women underground, and the first woman I worked with was very crude, vulgar, and almost went out of her way and overboard to insult or kind of verbally uh, agitate the other people in the mine. And later I learned that was her way of saying, you know, don't mess with me, don't give me a hard time, I'm here to do my job, and I'm going to do it just as good or better than you. And, you know, we had talked about it towards the end of my time at that job, and she explained that. She's like, when a woman comes to work underground, You've got two options, to let everybody run over you or to take charge and you run over them. I feel like it was a hard atmosphere for a woman to work, at least for a woman to come to work and be treated equal. Because I have seen women come work underground, and of course the guys are rushing to try to do her work for her. And, you know, I feel like that's also an unfair advantage. At the time, somebody may be, I wish people were doing my work for me. (laughs) I feel like it... uh, they either wanted to really almost treat them like subordinate or somebody that wasn't able to do the work, or they would just run over them, take advantage. So it was it was a hard dynamic, and from what I saw, the women had to really prove themselves or be really hard to work with in order to get the equal judgment or however you may say that. I've seen some interviews with some older coal miners um, like Lee Sexton, Morgan Sexton. They talk about their days in the mines in some Apple Shop films. And one of the things that really struck me about Lee's interview was he was like, if I was able, I'd go back tomorrow. And thinking about the risk, and especially you talking about what a woman has to go through in order to find her place in the group, that it really seems like it would be a hard choice to make to go underground. Do you think these people, these miners, are choosing this work because that's the only thing? Or do you think there is a real sense of enjoyment, as you said you found? 
Well, I think for the most part, everybody chooses to go underground for the good benefits and the good pay because without a very specific college education in this area, and I'm sure many of the other rural coal fields, that is your only option if you want to live a a good life, financially speaking. You know, later in life I've learned that really doesn't mean everything. But I feel like that is the biggest contributing factor for people choosing to work underground. But then once you start working underground and you've been there a while, there is a sense of enjoyment. For years, I said I would never do anything but work underground. And then, you know, with a daughter and a family, my opinion started to change. And I always said if I ever get an opportunity to get out of the mines, I'm going to take it. I think everybody's got a different emotional kind of feeling about it. But it's one of those, it's, it's a sense of pride, for one good pay, good benefits, you get accustomed to doing the job, doing the work, day in, day out. And I think some people maybe feel that's all they can do, and they don't really look at the talents and skills they actually have. Once again, it's so complicated because there's so many different types of people that work underground. Now, to make the decision to go underground when you do not have to, yeah, I would find that hard to understand. Let's go back before we switch gears a little bit to the stereotype of King Cole. We're talking about not having any other opportunities. Do you think the coal industry has played a part in the fact that we don't have other opportunities? Oh, definitely. A hundred percent, I feel like the coal company played a role. But honestly, it I guess I do blame them. But I hold our past, present, political leaders and fault for that because they're the ones receiving these funds for lobbying and fighting for the coal industry. I know of a few opportunities we've had in eastern Kentucky that were kind of pushed aside, ignored, or we were just told, well, that won't work. That won't work here. And I think a lot of it is the coal industry didn't want anybody competing for that workforce. I mean, in my opinion, you know, we had a long history with coal mining. And I feel like over that time, they kind of had a stronghold on the area. For most folks, we're, we're talking about mining, which we know is hard physical labor. And even the job that you left and went to is more of a technical, engineering, mathematical job. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so those kind of fit together. But here you are writing what I would call hard-nosed, real, gritty, but with words that really put a person in your situation for the world to read. So you're a writer now, and... That's hard to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) No, and so you had mentioned that you dedicated your second piece to your friend Boone, and you say that's the person who got you to start writing. What was that like? So, well, actually what happened is my uncle, Nate Polly, uh, pretty much everybody in the area knows Nate, him and Rich were in Lexington performing, and I want to say it was for like the Appalachian Studies uh, group at UK, but it was a, an event open to the public, so I went just to see friends and family. When they were performing, Nate was talking about how the stories from our history heritage, no matter where you live or where you're from, need to be recorded, need to be documented, whether it's through story, song, poetry, artwork. We need to preserve 
these stories from our heritage just so the future generations have an opportunity to learn and be educated. And, you know, that really kind of spoke to me in that moment. And I was thinking, you know, I'm sure there may be other people doing it. But at the time, I was like, you know, I'm not seeing any stories from coal mining. I did it for 12 years. Maybe I should record my experiences from day one and till the end of my career and maybe 30, 50, 100 years from now, some of my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they'll be interested in what I did and want to read it. And so from there, Boone being a good friend of mine, I know he's a writer and published and does really well, I thought, well, I'll let him kind of read these and give me some opinions on editing and what I should do to help people follow along. Had no idea or never even thought that it would be something people outside of the area or my family would even have interest in. And he pushed and plugged and finally uh, got me in touch with Daily Yonder. So they said they were really interested and we've had wonderful feedback and I'm just, I'm very excited. I just, uh, and it's really just me wanting to share with the world the story of my life. So you're a musician as well. Do you feel like because you were already of the creative capacity that writing came naturally to you? Or have you done things to nurture that skill? I don't know. I'm not a very good musician. So that's the reason I chose to write stories instead of songs. (laughs) But uh, no, I just, I just started writing off the top of my head. And I'll just sit down and just write stories as I remember them. I'm very fortunate to have the crew at the Yonder helping me with this because I really, I have no formal education in writing and I'm just kind of going on a him and just hoping for the best. So luckily I've got a good group of people that are helping me put some things together and uh, I think I am going to look into taking some writing classes in the future just because I'm enjoying this so much, you know, it's a uh, for me, it's almost like uh, taking a weight off my shoulders or a sense of peace. I just, when I start writing, I just get in a zone and feel great about it. You mentioned, you know, needing to tell the story, and, and that's one thing. I always was really super proud of my history, but what about now? And it seems like there has been just an overall down feeling in the region since I've been small even. Uh, I remember maybe when I was around a teenager, it just changed from optimism and pride to what are we going to do now? Yeah. And a lot of the Appalachian writers that I've read seem to continue to write from the historical point of view. I do really appreciate you coming out there like that because I do think our story needs to be told. What's it like to live in this down in the dumps kind of Appalachia, try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make something of it? You know, it's, um, I've actually been reading some different books, just of different oral history type things. And I think, you know, there are so many stories that need to be told. And a lot of people feel like, well, you know, I'm not a writer. I don't know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. It's a story, so I would highly encourage anybody that's got something personal they've experienced or witnessed or been a part of to share those stories, whether it be through a blog online, at an open mic night, because, I mean, I just have a strong passion for everybody having these stories 
and finding some way to record and document those for future generations. And we hear a lot of complaints about how we're portrayed in the media and how it's inaccurate. Who's going to fix that but us? Exactly. And I feel, well, I'm not going to say all of my stories would portray us in a better light because a lot of it, I mean, there's mixed feelings and mixed emotions and we always seem to be portrayed in a negative way. Not that all of that is inaccurate, but it's definitely not 100% accurate. They never drive by somebody who lives in a nice home and is living a decent life. They always try to find the worst possible situation they can. So I think it's up to us as people who are from the area and lived here to change that and to reach out, do work in the media. And yeah, you may not get on the cover of a big magazine or spotlight on TV, but to inform and educate people of the reality of it. Because we either hear things from a highly positive standpoint, optimistic flowers and trees, la la la, or this is horrible, nobody's going to live here in 20 years, you know, everything's bad, nobody wants to work, blah, 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 everybody's on drugs. You know, it's either really, really good or really bad when the way I see things, most things, even the good, as compared to the bad, exist in this gray area. And the story is where you get the meat of what's actually happened so that you don't approach a thing from a place of judgment. I feel like it's just easy for the media to stereotype there. It's been happening for so many years. There's really no work involved. It's just easy work, easy publication. And, you know, it'll be a struggle for anybody to come out with that middle gray area, the the truth of Appalachia, and especially southeastern Kentucky. I mean, it's going to be work. It's going to be hard, but it needs to be done. I would love to see more people coming out publicly with the stories, photographs, art, any kind of imagery to give people the true sense of what it's like to live here. They also talk about this region as being full of storytellers. And I know I grew up with stories. If there wasn't a knot at my grandmother's house that didn't go by without a ghost story, then it wasn't a knot. (laughs) You know, was that the same for you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I feel like I grew up always hearing stories and it was more stories than anything but you know i had a grandmother who uh, really loved artwork she loved to paint draw do sketches quite a few musicians in the family so yeah i was always growing up around different types of stories some of it was fiction non-fiction you know just a wide variety of folklore and tales and or a mix of both or, or a mix of <laughs> so both you don't know yes. what's the truth <laughs> what isn't it? it was just a it was a good childhood i mean looking back on that kind of thing you know especially like family reunions i would sit around and probably hear stories i shouldn't have all the adults sitting around a campfire telling these stories of when they were growing up and things that would happen and I think back on it and wish I had that documented and could listen to it again. Mm-hmm. It's just great stories and just a good time and gives you, as people say, the warm feeling, you know. Do you think that's helped you be a writer? I mean, it had to play a role some way. It's definitely encouraged me to work on this and to tell these stories. I was really focusing on my mining career right now, but I think even once uh, who knows if I'll ever complete it but my goal is to complete my full career but I think after that I'll even start writing about some other things that I've done in my life 
because I enjoy it. It's it's fun. You call your column in the black, and why is that? Well, it was kind of funny, is talk because I had no clue what these stories were going to turn into, or if it was just going to be me doing it for myself and just for enjoyment, and then they'd be stashed away somewhere at my house and hopefully not get destroyed. But Yonder really thought they were important and that people would be interested. So we were trying to come up with, you know, what could we call the series? What kind of label would work good? And I was asked for some slang terms, jargon, things that related to coal mining. And so anytime we were running really good or doing really good, they were say we were we were rolling coal. We were putting it in the black. And just so I just shot some emails and some recordings of how these phrases and things were said and so they chose in the black. When I first read the title of the column yeah. I assumed that it was what you just said, like, we're in the black, we're doing good. But then I read some of your pieces, and you say you don't understand the dark until you're in it. So Yeah, I mean, it can be taken different ways, but it actually came from just a, a way of us saying, you know, you'd get to work and they'd say, go put it in the black, you know, stuff like that. But no, I, I never really thought about that. But yeah, it's true, because everybody told me, when you go underground that's when you really experience darkness. There's a story I'd written about that, and my cap light was gone, and I could not see my hand in front of my face. I'd never witnessed that kind of darkness. I guess it's up to interpretation. Right, right. <laughs> so how many installments do you think you'll end up with? Oh, man, I don't think that they will all be able to be published online because... I'm already up to around the 35 range, and I'm not even into like my third, fourth year as a minor. So if I do all 12 years, it would be insane to try to get those all online. My hopes now are to somehow put it together as sort of a memoir, oral history, and not necessarily say that I'm going to publish a book, but I would like to piece it together in some sort of a book form, even if it's just to keep for myself and some of my family. We're almost out of time, and I want to give you the chance to speak openly. If if there were one or two things that you wished the general United States, the world even, could know about mining in eastern Kentucky, what would they be? Just that we are people like everybody else going into work every day to do a job. They are, you know, hardworking individuals. Everybody has a different personality. Not every coal miner is the same. We're not all living in poverty and struggling as your stereotypical Appalachian representation. For the most part, coal miners earn a good wage, live a decent life, and you'll find drug addicts. You'll find your old regular Baptist pastors and just your everyday people, a wide variety, men, women. I mean, miners are a diverse group of people, and that's what they are. Miners are just people like everybody else, going to work, doing their job, and trying to provide for their families. Are there any words of encouragement that you would have for Eastern Kentucky at this point in time? You know, for Eastern Kentucky, it's a community of strong people that are very talented, uh, you have artists, musicians, writers, then you have skilled laborers. It, 
the area is full of talented people. And it's about everybody banding together and working together to find this new economy, this new industry or workforce or work development that's going to bring the economy back up and allow Eastern Kentucky to prosper. There's a multitude of different options and different ways it could go, but I think it's going to take everybody standing together, put aside all of the war on coal (laughs) uh, propaganda that you hear, I mean, honestly, I would ask everybody to forget about coal. Negative, positive, forget about it in general. Look at a new opportunity. Because we have the workforce, we have the people and the skills, and it's we're going to have to all stand together and not ask or hope that our politicians are going to help us out and bring work here, but make it happen. It's one of the things that I always try to tell people is we're make-do people. Yes. We can make something out of nothing, and we've always been able to do that. And I don't think people will argue that maybe we're losing that skill, but I, I think that's a genetic skill. It is. I mean, I do think it'll be hard for some people to adjust. People who get, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, get so complacent and so used to going into work and getting a paycheck And not really having to worry about where that comes from. People are going to have to change that mindset and understand I'm going to be responsible for finding out where that paycheck's coming from. And that'll be hard to do, but I feel like everybody here is completely capable and can do it. It's just working together and making it happen. If they choose to stay here, because the other option is to go. And that's it. So we either go or we make do. And hopefully not everyone chooses to go. I know I did. Honestly, it was out of making the easiest decision and easiest option for me at the time. But, you know, I hope people choose to stay and choose to find a new opportunity and keep the area prosperous for years to come. Well, when can we look forward to more at the Yonder? At this time, every Monday there will be a new story released until further notice. (laughs) Great. I don't know how long it's going to run, but I do know at this time, every Monday, there'll be a new story published. And the Daily Yonder website is www.dailyyonder.com. Where can they click to Um, find you? Obviously, the stories are going to be on the front page when you go there. You just have to kind of scroll down because as they get a new new, uh, article on a different topic, it's published directly to the homepage. But you can click on their topic section and then go to In the Black. And then the stories are all listed by date and time. And the stories are being published in chronological order, too. So you can kind of, if you start at the first, as they release, you can read through my career as a coal miner. So if somebody has questions for you directly or or wants to get in contact with you about any of your work, how can they do that? Of course, I'm on social media, so you can just look me up on Facebook. But uh, my email address is GaryBBentley at gmail.com. Uh, it's, I'm pretty well open. Send me an email if you want to and hit me on Facebook. I'm kind of open to anything, really. I'm more than happy to talk about stories or give a little more information about what the story was about or details. I've already had a few uh, coal miners contact me and kind of want to know a little more detail or which mine was that at. Uh, one of the guys actually come to find out we had worked together in the mines before. So it was it was neat to hear from him. Well, I appreciate you coming today and sharing your work with us. It, it was an honor to talk to you about it because it, it really 
is exciting to me to read it. Well, thank you very much. I'm just happy to share the stories and get more people reading. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. And again, you can follow Gary's column in the black on the Daily Yonder website, which is dailyyonder.com. Be sure to tune in next Monday for another great interview or topic of interest. And from all of us here at WMMT, have a wonderful evening.